Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I am Christina Cuthbertson, and I will be your moderator for today. And it will give me great pleasure to introduce to you Mark Gettle on the subject of um, is it justifiable for governments to muzzle publicly funded scientists? But before I introduce him, just a few housekeeping notes before we get started. Um, I would like to remind you that today's session is being recorded, and also please to uh, remember to turn off your cell phones. Lunch today is $11, and there's a basket at the center of everyone's tables. Um, you can put your money in there and elect the best-looking person at your table to count it prior to Sackball coming to collect it. SACPAW is a volunteer nonprofit organization that relies on the support of event attendees like yourselves um, and also our uh, loyal membership base. And if you are interested, you can either sign up or renew your membership with Lisa uh, after, the, after the session. I would like to take this opportunity also to thank SACPAW's partners, the University of Lethbridge, who distribute our notices, Country Kitchen Catering, who provides our lunch uh, each session, uh, Shaw TV, who broadcasts SACPAW sections on Sundays at 4.30 p.m., and also the Lethbridge Herald for covering these events, among other media who cover SACPAW events. We'll follow the regular format today, 30 minutes each for our speaker, lunch, and a question period finishing up around 1.30 p.m. Now, I would like to introduce to you Mark Gettle. Uh, Mark is Editor-in-Chief of Biocontrol Science and Technology and a presenter for scientists in schools in the Southern Alberta region. He is also a a Jinshan Scholar, visiting professor at the Institute of Applied Ecology and Research, Fujian Agriculture and Forestry University of Fuzhou, China. He was employed at the Lethbridge Research Center for 21 years as an insect pathologist, studying insect uh, pathogens and their role in managing pest insect populations. Mark earned his Bachelor of Science in Biology honors at Concordia University in 1975, his Master of Science in Insect Ecophysiology at the University of Ottawa in 1977, and his PhD in Entomology at the University of Alberta in 1987. Um, He conducted postdoctoral research at Concordia, Cornell University in 1987 and 88, and spent a year on work-study leave in France at the Institut National de Recherche Agronomique. Um, So without any further ado, I uh, welcome Mark Gettle to the stage. Thank you, Christina. I hope my voice isn't too bad. Uh, Fortunately, uh, I'm just getting over a cold, and last week I could only whisper. So this, this week it's a little better, and I uh, hope that uh, my voice holds out. So after attending many of these sessions, I finally get a free meal, I, I understand. <laughs> so it's very nice. So, so what I'll cover today, <clears throat> a little bit of an overview. First of all, I think I'll talk about what is science. I think it's very important to know what is science. How is science conducted? 
Why and how is this knowledge transmitted? And the move to control this knowledge. And then Canada's recent, what we call, war on science. And if I have time, how did we get here? How do we get to where we are now? So what is science? Well, science is a systematic enterprise that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the universe. It is the pursuit and application of knowledge and understanding of the natural and social world following a systematic methodology based on evidence. And it is the concerted human effort to understand or to understand better the history of the natural world and how the natural world works with observable physical evidence as the basis of that understanding. And I think it's very, very important to realize that it is a global human endeavor. Okay. <clears throat> so how is science conducted? It's through observation of natural phenomena and through experimentation that tries to simulate natural processes under controlled conditions. It uses the scientific method. Hypotheses are made as explanations of phenomena, and experimental studies are designed to test these hypotheses via predictions which can be derived from them. And very importantly, these steps must be repeatable. You can't just make a conclusion because you saw something once. So scientists, who are scientists? Well, scientists are passionate. They're innovative. They're curious. They're creative. They're dedicated. They're recognized experts in their field. And their greatest joy is discovering a previously unknown fact that explains something that previously was not known or not accepted. So this is what makes, gives scientists their drive. <clears throat> so I think scientists can be compared to artists. As a scientist, I often look down at artists and thinking that, you know, we're spending all this money to have them do what they want and whatever. But after joining the Field Notes Collective that's been started here where scientists appeared with artists, I started realizing that passion, the passion that artists have and the passions that scientists have and how important it is to keep that passion. So would Monet have created his art if he first needed approval from a peer-reviewed committee? <laughs> and then what if he had continued if he was told that he could only use certain colors that were uh, uh, available from only a certain supplier? So scientists and artists need their freedom to come up with innovative breakthroughs, discoveries, and creations. So did anybody tell the scientists in Saskatoon that we want a crop that will overtake wheat, that will become a crop all around the world? No, it was the creativity and the passion of these scientists to come up with this. Same as the innovation of Cirque du Soleil. It's the passion that creates wonderful art. So how and why is this knowledge transmitted? So major discoveries are made based on previous knowledge. First step of any study that a scientist is undertake is to look at what has been done previously. So therefore, it is very important to make knowledgeable of previous findings available. <clears throat> so that the further studies can lead to further discoveries. 
and for eventual application by industry, public institutions, by the public themselves. So this is conveyed through press releases, talks at conferences where especially scientists convey what they found to other scientists, and most importantly, the scientific journals. And these scientific journals report on new knowledge. And these are peer-reviewed so that other scientists can have a look and see what that conclusion is and if it's sound or not. And, again, very importantly, it's available to all. And by all, I mean everyone in the world has access to scientific knowledge through these scientific journals. So each discovery is like finding a piece of a jigsaw puzzle. But when you're looking at that jigsaw, when you're uh, conducting or, or finding that uh, jigsaw puzzle, you don't necessarily know what that puzzle, which puzzle that piece will fit. Because there's lots of pieces, and finally, as they're put together, you come up to a conclusion. So there's many pieces of this puzzle found worldwide. And it's the scientist that looks at these puzzles and puts them together and sees how his or her piece fits. And finally, these pieces come together, and hopefully you have a discovery that's worthwhile. <clears throat> so in science, it is as important to discover which pieces, pieces don't belong in a certain puzzle as it is to discover which ones do. So consequently, every scientific study has value. Even though maybe that puzzle piece doesn't fit in that puzzle, eventually it may fit in another. So every study has its value as long as it's been carried out properly. The conclusion is sound. And it is made available to others. And again, I stress the fact that it has to be made available to others so that other scientists can build and see that that piece of the puzzle has been already found. So it's like a knowledge pyramid. Here at the base, we have lots of science that's conducted. A lot of this science may not be applicable to the next layer of the, of the pyramid. But as this base builds, finally we come to a discovery or an invention or something that's very useful either to the public or whatever. So it's a very important that that base is be very wide and strong. So why should we have publicly funded scientists and institutions? Well, we have universities. A lot of people don't quite realize, but I think universities, the research at universities is pretty well uh, publicly funded. So we have professors with up-to-date knowledge to, con to convey to students. So they're direct, actively involved in research. They're on top of things. <clears throat> they're training ground for, f further, uh, for future researchers, such as graduate students. A lot of people also didn't realize that 90% of the research conducted at universities is by the graduate students themselves, not the professors. So we have graduate students that are going to further go into academic research. They'll become government researchers. They'll go into industry. And the university professors are also to provide us access to highly trained experts. And supposedly, they're tenured and free to operate and speak out. And that's another very important part about university research. And again, they're recognized experts in their field. 
So at government institutions, well, government scientists address the needs of the country. <clears throat> For instance, insect outbreaks, sustainable agriculture. They also provide expert opinion to form government policies, to address public concerns, and to inform the public of scientific issues. And again, they are recognized experts in their field. <clears throat> I think that researchers and research institutes must be viewed as, or researchers must be viewed as firefighters. Okay? They must be located, staffed, and prepared to address problems as they arise, not after they arise. For example, the U.S. Center for Disease Control. It is aware of and ready to address the next pandemic. But it is, consists of many research scientists that conduct much basic research in the interim. It's like a fire station. They're ready to jump on a problem that occurs. But in the meantime, they're conducting research on gene transfer, on epidemiology, other things that would be considered maybe as basic science. So again, research centers must be viewed as fire stations with the right infrastructure, the trained staff, and the equipment to be prepared. You don't start building a research station when there's a, or a fire station when there's a fire. You put stations where you know there will be fires or there could be fires, and you make sure that they're staffed properly. So the way it used to be back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we had the basic sciences with and anybody can do science, so even the basic scientists, we had amateurs that are doing science. And these were hobbyists pursuing personal passions. In entomology, there are many uh, amateur entomologists that have named many insect, new insect species. They have contributed to science. Then we have the university researchers who are conducting science for the betterment of humanity. And again, their information used to be publicly available. Then we have the applied sciences, mostly at government institutions, to solve specific problems and public good solutions. And again, very important that it was publicly available. And then we have industry. And of course, industry is there for profit. So what they find is protected through patents, trade secrets, etc. And industry used a lot of the basic science, of course, that has been produced by publicly funded research. So this knowledge pyramid is extremely important. You have to have a strong base. So what changed? Well, science in general, I blame Maggie Thatcher and Thatcherism. As far as biological sciences, genetic engineering came up. So Thatcherism, what happened? Between 1979 and 1990, Thatcher government's agenda was to make science justify itself by economic impact, by its economic impact. Thatcher's policies were driven by free market ideology, not science. There were drastic reductions in publicly funded research, huge move towards in, what, what I call industrialization of publicly funded institutions. And this was copied by many governments, especially in the Commonwealth. Then came genetic engineering. What happened there? In 1970, Enzymes were discovered that can snip genes from DNA. Then in 1973, the transfer of DNA from one organism to another was accomplished. In the 1980s, technologies were developed to cut and paste these genes from one organism to another. 
then transformation technologies were developed and transgenic organisms were patented and there was a commercialization frenzy, the arrival of the genetically modified organisms. All of a sudden, there was a realization of the monetary value of science, a frenzy for intellectual property protection, establishment of patent and commercialization offices, both at university and government science departments. There was the industrialization of science, both, again, at university and government science departments. And in some countries, establishment of research institutes rather than research departments within government ministries. And the goal of all this was that these institutes would eventually become self-financing because they could produce science that can be sold. So research funding was all of a sudden linked to monetary value. The need for expertise, the need for firefighters at every fire station falls by the wayside. In Canada, at the federal and provincial funding agencies and research establishments. The question all the time, what is the monetary return on our investment? What happens to public good research? So Gary Goodyear, the Minister of State for Science and Technology, is quoted as saying, the government, the present government, is focused on activating science that can benefit Canada's economy. Research for research's sake may not cut it anymore. The world has changed, and so publishing a paper is a wonderful thing, but I see it as a first, maybe second base. The home run is when there's the activation of the knowledge, the use of the knowledge to gain, as I've said, social economic benefit. But to get the first base, to get to get the home run, you have to get the first base, and then you have to get the second base. So we forgets we're forgetting this knowledge pyramid. All of a sudden, this knowledge pyramid is being inverted. We're putting all our time, all our money, and everything into the most important, which is they view the most important is the technology transfer, the development of something that is can be sold. Least important here now is the basic research. So, how long is this pyramid going to be able to stand on its own if it's inverted like that? So there's a myth that there's so much scientific knowledge out there that's not used. The technology transfer frenzy began because they're saying, well, we have to transfer all this technology. We're spending so much money on science, but not all of it is, uh, is transferred. So the answer, government's answer, is to establish matching funding for science that requires industry inputs. So, but industry wants return on investment. So they're making sure that the dollar they put in, they're going to get $2 back. Also, there's a requirement for an interdisciplinary team approach. Scientists are forced into marriages they do not need or want. Proposals, contracts, IP sharing, goals, bureaucracy, and bureaucracy is what drives scientists like me crazy. So bureaucracy and meddling. Scientists spend more time now seeking funding and industrial partners, establishing teams, preparing reports, justifying their research, then they spend time conducting the research itself. So what is muzzling? Finally, we come to the subject matter. 
So muzzling is preventing a person or an institution from express, expressing their own ideas freely. But I'm going to expand this definition to the muzzling of scientists to preventing the ability of scientists to address and communicate important issues that they as experts feel need addressing. Basically controlling what research they can conduct and how and when they can communicate those results. So the foundations of democracy are to ex the access to information is a basic foundation. Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms also gives us freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication. A democracy is only as effective as its voters. If its citizens are being deliberately kept in the dark about important issues, then fully informed participation cannot happen. So what are the reasons for muzzling of scientists? Well, there's litigation, there's national security, there's financial reasons, and there's political reasons. So in litigation, one example that we were told we were not allowed to speak about at all was when there was a lawsuit against Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada for breeding and promoting tobacco. This was like 15 years ago or so. We had Delhi was our research center, southern Ontario, that was dedicated to producing better, more potent tobacco. So is that justified? Well, I guess the way the system works, if something's before the courts, I guess you're not supposed to talk about it. So I guess that litigation, probably, it's justified to make scientists not speak about it. Then, of course, there's national security, bioterrorism, national defense. Are these justified? And I would say these are justified. There are situations in, our, in a democratic country where it is justified to muzzle people from speaking out in public. But then we get into the financial system situation. So the first phase of scientists muzzling was financial, the way I see it, and certainly working for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. So public disclosure prior to filing a patent application is an absolute bar on receiving a patent on the disclosed invention. So if you have something that could be patentable, you don't talk about it, you don't let anybody know, you can't publish about it. You can't publish it. So it prevents disclosure of scientific discoveries, or scientific conferences, or even publishing in the journal. So there's a great delay in the knowledge transfer. And there's huge expenses in patenting fees. So this was eventually phased out. Universities as well as government institutes got these commercialization offices. Scientists were not supposed to pa uh, publish anything till it went through. It was cleared by them. And if they thought there was some value in it, then the scientists were basically muzzled and not allowed to speak about it, and a patent was applied. This cost millions of dollars, and these patents started piling up and started, people started <laughs> realizing, is there any return on investment on getting all these patents? So was this all justified? Should publicly funded research concentrate on return, uh, return on investment? Or should researchers be given the leeway to, so that they conduct the research the problems, into the problems they realize need addressing? Public good cannot easily be measured in dollars. And then there's the political. So here there was a cartoon that came out when the Office of Religious Freedom was opened, yet at the same time the Office of Scientific Freedom, the poor scientist there is hung 
dry out in the back. So the beginnings, the way I see it, was the genetically modified organisms, the Monsanto dilemma. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, as I mentioned, we had to be in partnership with industry. Well, we had large partnership with Monsanto. There was $2.5 million of federal funds dedicated to help Monsanto develop a genetically modified wheat. However, genetically modified foods did not go over well with the public. There were public protests, a great embarrassment to the government when it was released that actually the government was putting money into this. And of course, Monsanto is seen as the Darth Vader of GMO and science. So the result was that there was a directive that federal scientists are not to speak to media on any genetically modified organism issue. All, invita all invitations to speak to media about GMOs to be pre-approved by the government, uh, by a communications branch. And just recently, this policy was expanded to all scientists for all requests. So scientists must refer a journalist to a communications person. The, uh, this gives complete government control over public access to government scientists, their expertise, and their knowledge. So there are many recent examples of control, especially as it relates to environmental issues, fisheries, pipelines, global climate change, etc. If the government feels that whatever is going to be revealed is against what they think should be released, then they can muzzle it. Also, research funding. So research funding, past, present, and future. In the past, scientists were provided with all the research funding. Until the late 80s, external funding was not allowed. It was seen that the, the public was, the public taxpayer was, the research was for the benefit of all and not for any, uh, but in any single person like a uh, um, company. Since the 80s, the external partnerships and fundies were encouraged. This is where all of a sudden there was a monetary value. Core funding was still provided at the federal level. However, since the 2000s, there's a peer review system. Large interdisciplinary projects are encouraged. Federal funding is provided only if proposal approved by an external scientific peer review committee. And now that's even been expanded to a review by management. So there's complete control at the Ottawa level over who's going to conduct what research. Scientists are not able to, are not able to participate in a peer review project or, external, external, or obtain external funding are warned that they will be let go. So the present system is bound for failure. Highly qualified scientists are frustrated. Science needs passion, creativity, innovation. Funding now is provided only for programs which present present government priorities, but whereas research takes decades to fruition. Their long-term projects are being phased out. For instance, the Savely substation is closing. This substation was looking at long-term grazing we all heard about the experimental lakes area funding cut. This is a long-term funding uh, uh, research establishment that looked over long-term effects of pollution in lakes and rivers. So Harper's War on Science. Well, certainly enough evidence exists. I'll over the, go over this very quickly. The Office of the National Science Advisor was closed. Budgets of science departments are being slashed. Scientists are let go. Scientists are being muzzled. There's severe travel restrictions, even if funding is provided from external sources. So if a scientist is invited to go to a conference or even address a grower group, even if the grower group is saying, we'll pay for your travel, 
they're restricted. Total control of science is conducted through control of little funding that exists. Scientists are unable to address problems not sanctioned by the bureaucrats in Ottawa. And spending on science, innovation, and adaptation at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada will fall by almost 25% next year. And I believe Environment Canada is even worse. And the statement is that Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's overall budget will be going directly to producers in the agriculture industry. Well, what about the future of, science, of, of agriculture without science? What about the long-term studies? So the cornerstone of science within democracies, publicly funded research and expertise, discoveries are available to all for the betterment of society. Availability of publicly funded scientific expertise to all and sharing of scientific knowledge, forming the public of scientific issues, and flexibility for scientists to address their priorities. How do we get here? We are overtaxed is what we hear. So when the GST was reduced, corporate taxes were reduced, everyone said the government will not be able to afford the services that it provides. We will remain in power. There's a focus on short-term solutions by the government in, in, in power. We will win the next election is the opposition's focus on replacing the current well, Poor journalism. Sorry. <laughs> Especially as concerns science. I think... Unfortunately, there's something, the, 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 science, the science that's reported is not the right way. And then again, the public's in, in ignorance of science and how it works. We spend our, ta we spend our tax, tax dollars to find out that. And that's especially linked with the uh, journalism. If the journalism is poor, then it makes it look like the scientific discoveries are, were just a waste of time. And public apathy, my vote won't count. So one hopeful sign is that scientists are still free to publish their results in scientific publications. However, strictly curtailed our freedom to conduct the research scientists feel is most needed, funding and speaking to journalists, producers, and fellow scientists. Thank you.